SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators, and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of On the Tape. I am Dan Nathan. I'm joined by Guy Adami. And yeah, you are. Young EY from SoFi. We're already a little bit off the rails, as Liz would say. Liz, welcome. What's up? Good morning. Good Monday morning to everybody. We got a big show and we got a big week in the markets here. We have CPI tomorrow morning. We have the Fed, the all important Fed meeting on Wednesday. We also have a couple of earnings, I think, in the software space that are going to be interesting for us to talk about and see how these stocks react at 52 week highs. Um, what I would say are very high expectations. We have a little data as it relates on the housing. We have Lenard's going to be reporting earnings. Liz, you have something to say on lumber as Guy is going to lumber through this podcast. Guy and I all had a great conversation on Friday with Mike Marone and Boris Vucek. They are the co-founders of Crescent Rock Capital. They are long, short equity um, investors, and they've been in the game for a while. We talk about some of the different cycles, some of the things that kind of remind them of the past cycles in the current market environment. And we really enjoyed talking to those two fellows, so stick around for that. Okay, guys, let's just get into it because, again, we start off on Mondays. We usually have our friend Mike Wilson over there at Morgan Stanley. He's been reiterating his bearish theme. That's something that you also hear from Guy and myself on Monday mornings. You also hear it on Tuesdays, on Wednesdays, <laughs> on Thursdays, and on Fridays, which means that we've been wrong of late and we own it. We've been talking about it, but we also recognize the fact that this is not a, like, I don't think there's a whole heck of a lot of breath in this market. Rosie hit some data on that from Rosenberg Research, but we also have David Costin, guy at Goldman Sachs, who sees 4,500 in the S&P 500 by year end, and he sees the breath expanding. So some of these sectors that have lagged the 10 mega caps that have driven most of the performance this year, catching up. Let's start there. That's the bull thesis, right? That the laggards will catch up to the outperformers can go sideways and even maybe slightly lower. But the fact that so many of these stocks have been meandering to going lower for quite some time, they will play catch up. They seem to think that the Fed is navigating this environment extraordinarily well. And I'll tell you, in terms of the market, they absolutely are. So the bull case makes sense. My position would be, I think Mike Wilson's position, in so much that laggards are laggard for a reason. And quite frankly, in the environment that they're going to find themselves in over the next six months, there's a chance that there's continued underperformance. And the outperformance of so many of these stocks have stretched their valuations to a point where it's unsustainable. So that's the bear case. I will continue to take the bear case because I do think the lag effect of a Fed and 500 basis points of hikes is yet to be felt in the market. But you can totally understand why people would take the bull thesis here because the price action dictates exactly that. I think the timing of it, though, is why people are taking the bull thesis. And think about, granted, I haven't lived through quite as many cycles as you have, Guy, but a few. And a lot of times you get to this point in a Fed hiking cycle or in a time when monetary policy officials are supposed to be doing their job, right? And it looks like they are 
until it doesn't anymore. And I think we're at that point, and I've made this point many times, we talk about long and variable legs and monetary policy effects. And when it all started, we talked about that and said, it's a 12 to 18 month leg, and we've got some time before we really have to worry about that. But right now we are right in the middle of that 12 to 18 month period where it'll either come up the way that we would expect it to painfully, or maybe they do somehow navigate, thread the needle, land the plane, whatever we want to call it. Yeah. So it's interesting. So Mike Wilson over at Morgan Stanley, he says that, and I think this is really interesting, more declaring the bear market officially over. We respectfully disagree due to our 2023 earnings forecast. And we know that Mike sees like a base case of 200 bucks and a bear case of 185. Wilson says the pause could mark the end of the rally and the ironic twist as liquidity tightens. And we've been talking about that a little bit. I do think it's interesting that Rosie, okay, over there, Rosenberg Research, he's citing this bifurcation in the AI tech, we continue to note bifurcation between an increasingly AI tech momentum-driven stock market-driven driving valuations back to unappealing levels and red flags with the underlying fundamentals, particularly on the economic front. Indeed, the city surprise index for the U.S. has visibly rolled over, falling for five days in a row to hit a two-week low. Guys, this is what both of you guys are talking about here is a lag effects, and that's why he's quoting this city surprise index. The bond market has taken note before the stock market with the two tens treasury curve inverting back to its lowest levels in three months. All eyes this week will be on the Tuesday CPI report in the lead up to Wednesday's FOMC decision. Guy, how important is this CPI reading? Because you mentioned this last week on the OT, that we are likely now to start seeing these comparisons that are down 50% year over year, which looks like the back of inflation has been broken. But in fact, a 4.5% reading is nothing to get too excited about. It's funny what, no, how you can make numbers look, depending on where your posture is, where your stance is, where your politics are, you can make numbers look like whatever you want. The administration will say this week that inflation has been cut in half under our administration, blah, blah. And then and in terms of the math, they'll be correct. Of course, the problem is we're still twice, more than twice from the Fed's target rate of 2% inflation, if in fact that is a target rate. But the thing you brought up and a lot of good points, Liz talks about this as well. Very quietly, two's tens has gone out to about 86 or so basis points, probably on its way back to 1%, 1.1% that we saw at its trough or peak, depending on how you want to define it. So the market is not taking that into consideration at all. Think about this. You know this, Dan. Two's tens went down to about, I want to say, 42 basis points inversion, and now they've doubled that. So what is the bond market telling you? All the signals are there. The stock market, through the lens of the S&P, doesn't seem to care. Almost more importantly, through the lens of the NASDAQ, clearly doesn't care. But to Liz's point, maybe we've gotten it wrong in terms of the lag effect. Maybe there's been more liquidity sloshing around out there than I took into consideration. But the inevitability is clearly there. And the earnings power of these companies is going to be diminished in the environment that we find ourselves in. I think one of the things that the bond market is telling us is that the first time around was a false alarm. So that the re-steepening of the curve that occurred, and just to clear up what that really even means, why does the curve re-steepen? It typically re-steepens because the short end comes down, right? You start to believe that there's a lot of stress on the horizon. The Fed is going to have to cut rates. And remember back in spring when we had three to four cuts priced into the market, that's when that re-steepening occurred. And now we go back to this period of, oh, just kidding. Let's stay inverted for a while longer. The inversion, again, is the signal. It's not necessarily the thing that brings worry into the imminence of a recession or the imminence of a crash. But the signal's still there. And actually, the signal just got louder again in the sense of it's not solved. And that's the part that just I cannot square the circle. So even though I absolutely recognize that the equity market has started to show some positive signals in the sense of we've got more than 50 percent of the S&P back above the 200 day moving average, we've got parts of the sectors that are now participating. You've got smaller stocks participating. All the things that I complained about, frankly, two or three weeks ago and said breadth is unimpressive at best. Yeah, it widened out and there is strength and I absolutely recognize that. But the signals like yield curve inversions, particularly the twos, tens, the three month tenure and the near term forward spread that actually have not gotten any better at all, if not gotten worse. That's the stuff that one of those has to be wrong. And I find it very difficult to imagine a time that the entire bond market is wrong. That's interesting. You talk about the widening out of breath here, and we know that just these top 10 names have absolutely gone parabolic in across them. They're up about 40% on the year. They represent seven, $8 trillion 
in market cap. So they've done a lot of the heavy lifting. I'd say that if you're getting a bit speculative and so like to the point that you might see some cyclical groups doing a little bit, here's the deal. They're in very weak hands, right? So if some of this data continues to get worse and people start to actually start pricing in a recession, if you just started chasing the trades as a catch up, right? You could, you'll find yourself puking that stuff out pretty quickly. And then if everyone heads for the door and some of the bigger names, you, you do have yourself like the setup for a pretty nasty sell-off, especially with a VIX that is 14 and a half or so. But I want to go to former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers was quoted in a Bloomberg article. And I thought this was really interesting. So he's talking about how hot the economy is. He's definitely been a proponent for the Fed breaking the back of inflation and higher for longer. And I think this is really interesting, though. So he says at the same time, soft landings represent the triumph of hope over experience. And commercial real estate is the one area where there are likely to be pockets of distress. Our friend Peter Bookvar over at Bleakley Advisors in his book report this morning is also talking about the same thing. Now, you might say that some of these folks who are pointing out to the potential credit issues of higher for longer are just, I don't know, like they're just doomsaying and this and that or whatever. But we know from other cycles that this is how it happens. Peter's talking about all of this debt that has basically been at floating rates that all of a sudden needs to be refied at much higher rates. A lot of these real estate projects, and we were talking about this months ago, there, there were some big commercial real estate companies just handing over the keys, right? Because they just can't make these projects work. So we've yet to see that. And we know that we spent a lot of time in this kind of back to the office sort of thing. And some of the biggest companies in the United States are having problems getting their workers back to the office. And they're going to basically have to figure out workarounds. But for the most part, some of these big metropolitan areas are going to have very hard times doing that. So talk to me, Guy, a little bit about what we're likely to see on the credit front here, because you quoted the HYG, that's the high yield ETF that tracks a lot of these sort of securities. And it's firmed up here, right? So for all intents and purposes, we haven't seen the kind of warning signs screaming in red, but they're under the surface. And I think that I guess if the Fed does pause here, but they do signify it is a hawkish pause. That is where some of these large PE firms, some of these large commercial real estate firms are really going to have to rethink, right, some of the projects that they have or some of the investments they have in a higher for longer environment. Are you a fan of the movie The Rock, either one of you? Of course. No idea what it is. Oh, my God. the face. Tell me. Let's just say you're saying that just to irritate me on a Monday. The great, of course, Sean Connery in that movie, Nicolas Cage. But Ed Harris, who every movie Ed Harris is in, he's fantastic. So- I point that out because there's a scene, Dan, you may recall this, obviously, Elizabeth, you do not, where the, the guy from Terminator is trying to infiltrate The Rock along with Sean Connery and Nick Cage, right? And they make their way into the bathhouse, but Ed Harris has already gotten to a higher point, so they have them cornered. And they're all sitting there waiting, and nothing's happening. And that's what's going on right now. So Nobody make a move and everything will be okay in terms of credit. A rock falls, somebody sort of nudges something, and that sends a crescendo. Everybody starts firing at once, and then you have a bloodbath on your hands. So go back, Elizabeth, and watch the movie The Rock. Right now, I think we're at a point in the credit cycle where if everybody doesn't move, we're going to be okay. If people don't mark down their books, we're going to be fine. If things don't move precipitously, we're going to be fine. Something's going to trigger it, and then there's going to be this cascade effect that leads to a credit event. And that's been my concern all along. Now, those concerns, Dan, have been completely unfounded because nothing has happened. But that doesn't mean that something will not happen. And if you think about what's going on in the commercial real estate market, and if you think about where banks are right now, not in terms of necessarily where yields are, but in terms of what they're going to have to do to make their books whole once again, and the rates are going to charge, and whether or not rates go up or down at this point doesn't matter, credit conditions are going to tighten, that to me leads to a credit event. And you're right to point out the HYG, but you're also right to point out that nothing's really happened yet. But again, I said, I use this word all the time. There's an inevitability to all of this. Liz, let's talk a little bit about commodities here, because again, this seems to be one that has been really, it flies in line with what we're seeing in the CPI readings coming down. We have crude oil right now below 68. A year ago, all we could talk about was gas at the pump into the summer driving season. So we're down considerably from the highs. We're down year over year. It seems that we had the move out of the Saudis on the supply front here. We had a little pop, but we're back towards 
those sorts of levels. And so I'm just curious, like when you think about Lennar is going to report this week, we've had some really strong numbers. Guy's been talking about the home builders now for weeks and weeks as they've most have approached 52 week highs and the supply demand situation there is one of the biggest drivers. But when you think about some of the input costs, right? labor, lumber, some of the other industrial commodities, we've seen the back broken of all of those other than labor. So talk to us how commodity prices are factoring into some of the things that you're thinking about and how you might get more constructive on different areas of the economy. You've been talking about how you want to move into cyclicals when we get towards what we think is the worst sentiment in and around the economic cycle, which is, again, very different when the what the stock market is telling us. It's more in line with maybe the way you're thinking about yields. And so talk to me about how commodities fit into this. There's a number of different commodities that are sending different signals, but I would say broadly the theme right now with commodities is that they're telling you that we're not in a cyclical expansion. You can look at copper. It's going to tell you that. You can look at things like lumber. Regardless of what the home builders are saying, lumber is telling you that there's not a cyclical expansion going on. Lumber's down almost 20% in the trailing one-month period. And that flies completely in the face of what's happening in the market with home builders. There's also some contradictory signals if you're looking at the housing market between what's going on in new homes and what's going on in existing homes, right? The market is still more or less frozen in the existing home space in the sense that people that are in a 3% mortgage don't want to have to get a new one. So if they don't have to move, they're not going to do it. Then there's not enough inventory on the market. When there's not enough inventory on the market and you're a buyer, what do you do? You go build a house instead. And there's all this pent up demand from builds that didn't occur before because there weren't enough workers and there wasn't enough supply and there weren't materials for it. So now we're, I think what we're seeing is that pent-up demand is looking like strength in the housing market and it's propping the housing market up from a new homes perspective. But the signals from commodities, whether it's oil or lumber or copper, are telling you that this is not a time when demand is broadly sustainable or when everybody is sure that demand is going to continue to increase. I think that actually the housing market is trying to solve a problem that it's had for the better part of the last couple of years. Yeah, the housing market is fascinating, Dan. We talk about these home building stocks. I think Pulte Homes, I want to say new all-time high. Toll Brothers, I think within a whisper. DHI, probably those levels as well. So somewhat defies logic, but you know, in terms of what Elizabeth said, it's supply-demand thing, and that's what we've talked about for a while. There's supply-demand imbalances, and now that commodity costs are going their way, some of the leverage and the margin power they have is pretty extraordinary. So they find themselves in a really interesting, unique environment, despite the fact that interest rates have moved so precipitously higher. That being said, you look at crude oil, which, you know, good job by you, Dan. Again, this last Saudi cut seemingly lasted about, I don't know, 24 hours, maybe less than that. Now the price is right back to where there are a number of cross currents here, clearly in terms of what's going on. If you listen to Halima Croft, she still thinks significantly higher. Goldman Sachs, I think over the weekend or maybe on Friday, cut their price of Brent, I want to say from 94 down to 85 or something around those levels. So more and more of these analysts are starting to come around to your way of thinking. But I continue to think that crude oil does have a leg higher in this thing. I think people are underestimating, again, the supply-demand imbalances that are evident there. And these energy stocks, despite the fact that Exxon probably topped out the day they reported earnings about five or so Fridays ago, I still think they have legs. It comes back to all these different, again, cross-currents in the commodities markets as well as the equity markets. And I think people are struggling to try to figure it out. Back to the housing thing. When I look at some of the names, so Guy just highlighted the fact that Toll Brothers is just on a runaway breakout, right? And these stocks are cheap. And I guess they're like some early cyclical plays, but then you throw in the supply-demand dynamics. But then if I look at Masco, which is like a building supply company, I look at Whirlpool, which if you're building new houses, you have to put washers and dryers and in dishwashers and all that sort of stuff in there. I look at William Sonoma, I look at you know, R and, and these stocks don't trade well. So Masco just had a little bit of a run over the last week or so. It's up at least 10%. But again, it was massively underperforming many of the home builders. How do you square that a little bit with what's going on in the home builders and then all the folks that build things or make things that go into the process of home building? I would mention 
Home Depot is well off of its 52-week highs, which it was made 350-ish or so. Here we are just below 300 in six months or so. So talk to us a little bit about maybe retail and consumer behavior in and around the housing trade, because they're two very different trades. So the companies that are housing adjacent, whether that's Home Depot or a materials company that's providing the lumber or the copper to build the houses, that stuff happens a little bit more in real time. And this is what I logically, this is my speculation of what's happening. The home builders, right, if permits are still backed up, which there is a backlog of building permits, the expectation is that at some point they're going to have to build those homes. So if you're a builder and you're trying to extrapolate out what the stock should do based on what the pent up demand for builds is, then home builders will react much sooner than the rest of it in the sense of you got to build the house before you put a washing machine in it. You got to build the house before you do furniture and you design and everything. And there's still a chance there's this gap between, okay, the permits are out there, right? The expectation is that we're going to build more houses. But the other thing that's increasing slowly, sort of there every once in a while making headlines, is the amount of deals that get walked away from. And that could increase as well. So maybe your plan is to build a home. But then at some point, if something changes in your professional life or your life at all, right, you might walk away from it and say, you know what, we can't do that anymore or we're going to put it on pause, in which case you didn't buy the washing machine to put in the house. So there's two different pieces to, I think, those adjacent demand stories where part of it is about new homes and moving and new mortgages and all of that stuff. But the other part is the people that where it's frozen, you're not moving, you're not doing home improvements, you've put some of that stuff on pause. And that's the kind of stuff that comes through in durable goods. And that's why I watch durable goods so much, the softening and demand that occurs on the other side of that as well. All right. Here's one today after the close, Oracle is going to report earnings and Evercore ISI just upgraded the stock this morning. The stock's up 4%. Guy, this is a stock that I think you mentioned a couple times last week. You're really interested to see just how much of this AI trade gets worked into this. The company has been very quiet. They haven't done Adobe, I think a few weeks ago, we highlighted this on the pods, put out a press release talking about just how they're going to be using these large language models across their platforms. They're going to be monetizing it, this, that, the other thing. The stock's gone up 20% um, in a straight line. Oracle have been working its way up generally over the last, let's call it six months or so, it's up 35% of the year. Now it's up 4% in the aftermarket. And when I think about analysts putting their kind of their necks out like their guy, this is a tough one to do. When you look at, I'm looking at fact set right here, there's 14 buys, 18 holds and four sells. And this is not a stock that trades at a sort of valuation that you have to get too worried about. But by the same token, it's not a high growth stock. Now, it's a big roll up. They've made lots of acquisitions over the years. There hasn't been a whole heck of a lot of organic growth when they find themselves in the, the crosshairs of one of these big secular shifts. They're usually a little late to jump on here. So I'm just curious, like how this stock sets up. I think it's very near all-time high is going Yeah, I think it is an all-time high, if I'm not mistaken. You can check me on that. The stock, it broke out at 90, okay? This was in early April, and here we are at $114 into a print where you could say that expectations are very high. Like, how do you deal with a stock like this? A couple things. I think in terms of the move, I think a lot of people are saying, where can I find potential growth like we're seeing in, obviously, these ridiculous names like NVIDIA. You pointed out Adobe all these names that have linked themselves to AI, where can we find potentially not that type of growth, growth that's meaningful with a valuation that makes sense? And I say a lot of people came to say, wait a second, Oracle's probably fits that bill in terms of what you talked about, all the roll-ups. They've done a good job integrating acquisitions, and you can make a compelling case on valuation. I don't think it sets up particularly great. The run-up has been significant. They're going to have to say something pretty extraordinary to continue this move higher despite valuations being reasonable. So I think what's happened with analysts, I think a lot of them just found themselves a bit off sides in terms of the stock and the amount of run that it's had. And if you want to look at another name that's probably people are going to start talking about in the same light as Oracle, watch when people start talking about IBM. We're probably a month or so from people saying, you know what, IBM might have some mojo here. Yeah, they were lost in the wilderness for a decade or so. They made that Red Hat acquisition. They've integrated it pretty well. Maybe we can find a reasonable valuation here and maybe we can catch lightning in a bottle. So I think that's what happened in Oracle. And I think you're going to see more of those type of legacy names have similar type of moves. When IBM does it, remember their whole blockchain commercial with that tomato that goes around the world? And then obviously SaaS has been something that they've been trying to do. I'd be hitting the sell button as soon as they start talking about it. But I don't think Oracle sets up 
particularly great. Anything that they announce will just incremental to stuff that, listen, all of these companies have been integrating machine learning and generative AI. And really it's the advances that we've seen in such a short period of time, at least with chat GPT, that gives a lot of these folks license. And one of them is Adobe. And Adobe is going to report after the close on Thursday, the stock's up 35%. Interestingly, it's down 33% from its all-time highs made, I think, in late 2021. But here's a company that has 89% gross margins, expected to grow earnings and sales about 11, 12% a year for the next two years. And it trades at about 30 times. So this is not a cheap stock when it trades about 11 times on a price to sales. That being said, we are in a moment where it like, these stocks, people are paying indiscriminate prices. They're not particularly worried about it. And I think when it finally finds its way into the Oracles or the IBMs, if we hear Hewlett and Dell start talking right. about it, I think that's we'll when you know this thing is long in the tooth. No, the tag ends on this trade. Liz, talk to us a little bit just on sentiment and software in general. And what would be some of the things that, listen, I'm looking at like what's trading up. We're recording this right before the opening on Monday morning. AMD's up a few percent. NVIDIA's up 1%. Shares like of Tesla, which a lot of people increasingly are when they think about full self-driving and all the investments that they've made. AI is a big part of that. Elon Musk has been talking about this for years and years. He's not a Johnny come lately. And he even said at their shareholder day a couple of weeks ago that they are likely to have an AI moment, which I thought was really interesting because normally when the stock is on a huge run, he has historically poo-pooed the stock's movement a little bit. So curious just on the software front, as far as sentiment, are we reaching levels that are starting to get your antennas up a little bit further? And that's just really from a sentiment standpoint, a broad market sentiment, because that is what's driving the stock market right now. Sentiment is driving it, but also just the welcoming of multiple expansion and the, the comfort again with multiple expansion that's driving it. When you look at something like software versus semiconductors, and this is a relationship that people like me look at pretty often. Similarly, I look at consumer discretionary versus consumer staples and try to see if there's a signal being sent. Semiconductors continue to outperform software, but both of them are up, which would tell you in the short term, or so let's say over the last month or so, that the signal from software and semis is that things are going pretty well and that cyclically things are looking up and that there's a reason to have optimism. If you look at the line of semis versus the line of software, you had this huge jump in semis, largely due to NVIDIA, largely due to just a couple names. But this huge jump, that's the kind of stuff that from a sentiment perspective, I look at and say, probably a bit extended, probably a bit much. And if you get back to the multiple expansion discussion, I mean, if we're looking at just what the market is priced in right now, what the Fed's going to do, just really baseline stuff. We're at a 525 Fed funds rate. We've got a less than 25% chance of a hike this week, but a 75% chance of a hike in July. We're still hiking. We're still tightening. We're still pulling liquidity out of the system. That is not an environment for multiple expansion to be supported. So regardless of whether or not it's sending a cyclical signal, if there hasn't been a lot that's changed under the surface from a fundamental perspective, the multiple expansion is going to be tough to maintain. All right. Big week here, people. CPI tomorrow, Fed on Wednesday, some interesting earnings from a sentiment standpoint. Liz, you're going to be back with Guy and me on Thursday at Market Call 1 p.m. That would be Eastern time, Guy. You and I are going to be on Sirius XM Radio today. That would be Monday for our Market Call. That's going to Stop be an all-in show. We're going to put all of the info, how to get in touch with us in the show notes. We'll be back on Market Call Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we got our Danny Moses on the tape pod drop Friday morning. So check out all of our stuff all this week, guys. So it's strap in, buddy. We got it. And then you'll probably see us on the CNBC's Fast Money also this week. So stick around for our conversation with Michael Marone and Boris Vucek. They are the co-founders of Crescent Rock Capital. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers 
with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank NA, NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Today, we're joined by Mike Marone and Boris Vucic. Now, check this out, people. As most of you know, G. Swizz here, third person, Georgetown University, class of 86. Dan Nathan, University of Pennsylvania. Dan, what year was that? Like 2014 or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 95. 95. Now, I only mention that because Mike Marone is Georgetown 91 and Boris Vucic is Penn 89. So there's like a home and home thing going here, Dan. Yeah, not bad here. So we have the co-founders of Crescent Rock Capital. Guys, welcome to the Off the Tape segment of On the Tape. Thanks for having us. So, Mike, let's get into it. Let's talk about how you guys met, how you started. Give us a little bit of background. I know our audience loves to hear the backstories. Yeah, sure. Boris and I, we've been working together close to 15 years now. We got our start together at Pennant Capital, Alan Fiorne's long short fund. He had come out of David Tepper's shop. Boris, in fact, was probably the first hire, first investment hire that Alan made back in 01. I joined in 08 and we were there for, I was there for a decade. And Boris and I felt like it was time to do our own thing. And that's how we partnered up. And we started Crescent Rock. I started investing in fourth quarter of 18 here. I've been in the business since the late 90s. Boris is early 2001, our senior analyst also since the late 90s. So we've been doing this quite a long time in the public markets, seeing everything from the tech bubble burst up through where we are today. We're going to get to the tech bubble burst and where we are today, because there's certain vibes that seem to be rhyming a little bit. But Boris, talk to us. What what was it like starting in Q4 of 2018? Because Guy and I remember it very well. It seemed like the stock market was parting, as Guy likes to say. We had a new Fed share who seemed to be really focused on normalizing interest rates. It might have been one of the first Fed shares in a very long time that Guy Adami could get behind that sort of ideology a little bit. And then, I don't know, was it early October? There was a little bit of a global growth scare. And all of a sudden, it seems everything came just crashing down. We had a stock market down 20% in two and a half months or so. So I'm curious, it might have been great timing for you guys as you were able to leg into some positions because... The Fed pivoted right before Christmas, and then it was just all systems go for 2019. So talk to us, what was it like starting a fund in that sort of like volatility regime? Dan, I'm really impressed that you have uh, such vivid memories of that quarter because we do too. I think I have a couple of scars I could show you from that quarter. So it was interesting because Michael and I actually were excited to get going. And in fairness, when we look back, one of the mistakes we made is we got invested pretty quickly, right? Because we thought, hey, we're heading into Q4. We had some conviction ideas. Typically, seasonally, that's a pretty good time. But to your point, the world turned upside down as, as you had that scare and it went straight down. And when you say timing, you can't time it perfectly. We certainly didn't from our investment standpoint. Now, having said that, through the quarter, we were able to kind of reposition and get ready for the next year and come out of it really strong the following year. But it was certainly tumultuous and it wasn't what we had expected or anticipated. Otherwise, we probably would have picked our spots a little bit better. 
Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about that, because when I look at just the mission of Crescent Rock, you guys are long, short equity folks. You are value investors. And we want to talk a little bit about your process and your focus a little bit. But that was a period where all of those sorts of strategies that you just talked about, it was like a perfect macro storm, if you will. And there was a whole heck of a lot of Fed induced right into the markets in a very short period of time. And then you just, everybody got turned around by the Fed's about face. So talk to us, what is it like trying to be a bottoms up fundamental equity investor when you just have that sort of macro headwind that hits you all of a sudden? We are bottoms up stock pickers. We're fundamental stock analysts, right? That's what we look at. Having said that, just by having a net and gross exposure, you're expressing a market point of view, right? We had a relatively high gross in net compared to today. Today, we're at our lowest gross in net. We'll get to that, I'm sure. But we had that and it is tricky because you have to figure out where you want to go fishing as a bottoms up stock picker and where you're going to find stuff. And so we had to pivot a bit. And I'm going to correct you a little bit in that we're not pure value investors. We're actually a go, we have a go anywhere style. And what that means is, speaking to your point about the macro, we go where the opportunity is. So having Michael pointed out how old we are by saying we've invested since the tech bubble burst. And so we remember times when value worked, right? We remember times when quality compounders worked. We remember times when interest rates were low and long duration assets worked. So at different points in time, you've got to pivot, even if you're a bottoms up stock picker, in our opinion, right? And so the way we looked at it then was we did have to pivot what we were looking at. And if you look at today, what's happened is we've had to shift out of all the long duration assets into more value, into higher quality businesses in, in the opportunities to shift. So as you go through, we could, I'm sure we'll talk about COVID and so forth, but you have to pivot where you're looking and where you know the most fish lie when you go fishing. And so the example I like to give is back in 2001, when the world was falling apart and I joined Penn and Capital, we were investing post-bankruptcy securities. They were awesome, right? What a great set of opportunities you had. Guess what? In the last five years, I think we've invested in two, right? So why should we force fit that style into an, an opportunity set that doesn't exist? So as we were going through that Q4, yeah, we had to rethink like, hey, what's going to work? How do we get out of this? How, what's the opportunity set? And we had to shift the book accordingly and jettison some ideas that just weren't going to work in that environment. Mike, the game is never easy. In 2022, things made sense to me. And there was a lot of clarity for me in terms of the market. In June of last year, when the VIX reached about 35, I thought there was an opportunity for the market to bounce in a meaningful way. It happened. And then there was a subsequent sell-off. In October, we saw the same setup. That made sense to me with the VIX spiking up to about 35. And we saw the subsequent bounce off the October low. What I'll tell you is, since mid-December, early January, I've been extraordinarily confused. I found this one of the most difficult landscapes to navigate in quite some time. So I'm curious as to your thoughts as to where we are now and how difficult it is to navigate what I find to be an extraordinarily difficult market. No, I think that's absolutely right. Just to give it a little history, you could go from the global financial crisis up until COVID, and it was pretty much one thing worked, right? You do quality, you can do growth, you can go further out on duration, and it just worked. And then, as you mentioned, in 2020, we had a bit of a shift. And then in 2022, obviously, the Fed enters this tightening cycle. And we get to today, everyone knew 2022 was going to be tightening. As you said, VIX exploded a couple of times. You can play to its bounces. But to Boris's point, we've had to keep the gross relatively low, particularly as we entered this year, specifically because what you talked about, which is when you don't have a lot of conviction and where the big picture is heading, it's not enough just to take that net down. You take that net down you're going to get crushed in the bear market rallies as they follow through. But now, if you look at the economy, you look at the market, there's a lot of cross currents. It's not obvious directionally. Look, at three weeks ago, we were pricing in 100 basis points cut. That's completely been priced out now. And now we're looking at basically a 40, 50% chance of an increase by July. So it's made it exceptionally difficult because usually you can count on maybe the market or maybe style to help you out. This type of environment, you can't really rely on that. Week to week, it's back and forth. Is there a soft landing, hard landing, no landing? What are we going to even look at the past week? We basically had this pretty hard reversion, small caps versus large caps. So not only the market not going to help you, style's not going to help you. Value and growth are going to flip back and forth in that type of environment. And so what we've had to do and what's worked so far this year for us is we've had to focus more on the self-help type ideas 
more on the idiosyncratic opportunities where you're not going to get that lift from the market. You're not going to get that lift from style, but you can still ferret out some good individual ideas that you can play that week in, week out, whatever the market's doing, you could probably grind out some returns. Boris, let's talk about that a little bit because I think a lot of our listeners like to see how pros think about individual opportunities, right? How they identify opportunities, whether it be time horizon, risk reward, targets to the upside, targets to the downside. What are some of the inputs that you guys use? Is it valuation based? What are product cycles look like? How much is the macro involved in your thought process on an individual name or a thesis within a sector. So give us a sense of like your process for identifying opportunities and what are the thresholds to make it into your portfolios? As we talked about, the macro kind of informs us where to look, right? And it's not to say that we won't invest in something else. It's just the bar is higher. But like I said to you earlier, we have this go anywhere style. So what does that mean? That means that we can do value, quality growth. We can do turnarounds. We can do spinoffs. We can look at special sits, whatever it might be. And so how do we compare those? What we're looking for, and we're really investors, we're not kind of traders around quarters. We're looking at an 18 to 36 month time horizon on the long side, right? And what do we want to see? We want to see that based on our analysis, we can get a 40 plus percent return on the upside with a commensurate 20% downside risk. So two to one skew at least. And when I say that, I really mean our book is 50% upside generally is what we're underwriting. Now, what we need to see also is that there's a high probability that our base case is going to work out. What does that mean? That means if it's a turnaround and it's a cost-cutting exercise, we have a lot more visibility into that. The management team, they can do it, high probability. If it's a legal case where we don't have the expertise, that's a low probability event. So we can't underwrite it the same way we do something that's a high probability or if it's a clinical trial outcome, we can't underwrite that the same way we do a spinoff, you know, something like that. Now, within each of those, we might have different ways of valuing it. A value name might be under a cash flow yield bit. And how does it compare to comps? How does it compare to in the interest rate environment? In a high quality growth name, it might be, can we underwrite 20% equity compounding over time? And then what does that look like in two years? At the end of the day, can we make 40% in 1836 months? And how does that compare to a value name? Can we make that much or more? And that's how it gets into the book. We continually evaluate the thesis with new information. So you asked about macro. Hey, when something changes, when the rate environment changed, we had to jettison a lot of our long duration assets. It's not that we didn't like them. And as a matter of fact, we kept a few that did get taken out and earned, turned into decent returns, but we couldn't have the exposure we did because the macro changed. So it's not to say that every name we have the macro, but it does inform us, hey, we the bar is higher to keep stay in this name or get into this name. So hopefully that gives you a sense of how we think about it. Mike, they say there's never the right timing for just about anything in life. And we mentioned that you guys started in the spring of 2018. So if you think about that, we talked about what happened in from Halloween until December of that year, the market went down 19.9%. Obviously you lived through that, you got through it, but then COVID hit. You both worked at great shops. Obviously so much of what we do, being on a desk, getting that sort of energy off a desk, the world changed in a dramatic way. So talk to me, Mike, about how you guys evolved at Crescent Rock, because I'm certain it wasn't an easy transition. No, that's absolutely right. And I would say in retrospect, the things we could have done better in that transition, despite the fact that coming out of that April, May timeframe, we put together our best 12 months after that, I do think we made some missteps. And part of it is exactly what you indicated. It was a jarring change. I think we underestimated a bit that fiscal and monetary response in the spring and early summer of 2020. We had been coming off a period where it was very much, as I described, a mid-cycle type approach to how you would look at things. You could get away with longer duration. You can get away with growth of your names, value you wanted to steer clear from. Um, obviously, that script completely flipped after the response to COVID by the Fed and the fiscal response. And as bottoms up stock pickers, we're not going to go out and turn the portfolio on a dime. We got to go out, we got to find the individual names from a bottoms up perspective that we can layer into the portfolio. And at that time frame, you know, what you can go further out on leverage, but you had to bring in that duration. You could go certainly tilt towards value and sort of an early cycle type play. And we had not had the book populated like that. Now, given as long as we've done this, there was certainly a number of names that we could back to very quickly, but to get the whole portfolio turned probably took us at least two quarters 
before we felt that we finally had the book in the shape it needed to be for where we were in the cycle. We started the conversation talking about how you guys not only started the firm, obviously, when you did, but you guys started investing at multi-strat hedge funds in the wake of the, the dot-com implosion. And I'm just curious, guys, because I've often said that, you know, what we just went through over, let's call it the last year and a half in the markets and the economy really had bits and bobs of kind of what happened in and around the dot-com bubble inflating, but then also the burst, right? And then a lot of the things that we saw between that and then the highs in 07 before what happened in the financial crisis also seemed like lots of bits and pieces of kind of what we've experienced too. And when I think about 2022, but really how it started unfolding in mid 2021, right? Is like long duration sort of equities that would benefit or that had benefited dramatically from all the monetary and fiscal stimulus in the lead up, right? Started to come undone. And it should have been the sort of like warning bells that a lot of investors who've been in the markets for the last couple of decades should have started to figure out. But to Guy's point, this last five and a half months, has been really difficult. And I can't remember in my 26 years in the business, a period as difficult right now. So talk to us a little bit how you've taken your experiences from those prior two periods and the kind of responses that we've seen from a monetary and fiscal stimulus and give us a sense of where you think we are right now. I think we all seem a bit confused and we are professionals who've lived through these sorts of things. And Guy and I have a very different experience, I think, than you guys, is that we engage with a lot of retail investors, right? And so to us, it's we try to think of it through the lens in which we were brought up in the business, but we also try to demystify it a little bit for a risk a retail audience. And listen, we talk to a lot of pros like you guys, and it seems like most people are really suffering from a lack of clarity about the current environment, but we can definitely take bits and pieces from these different periods and try to think about where we're going to be, let's say six months, a year from now. So I'm curious, Boris, what are your thoughts on all of that? Again, lots of questions in there, but hopefully you can help demystify a little bit for our listeners also. To your point, in mid-21, and as the long-duration assets started to, to really struggle, right, our view was we had to just get out of those because our view was that the rates had to crank up to start dealing with inflation. And it, the error we made, and quite frankly, is we did get out of those long-duration assets, but not fast enough, right? And so I'm sure a lot of your listeners probably saw the same type of thing. You're involved with some great SaaS companies that are growing fast and you're like, how it's 10 times revenue should be 15 times revenue, whenever it should be. And suddenly they're at seven times revenue and you're like, wait a second, what just happened? And can it go back to where it was? And our view is, no, it's not going to go back there anytime soon. And so even though tech has rallied here, it's really been the large cap tech. It's been AI, right? But it hasn't been a broad based rally. And if you look at the equal weighted S&P, it's gone nowhere, right? It's just really concentrated. So if you look at this year, starting at the beginning of the year, we started very conservative because to your point, we didn't know where things were going to go. Our fundamental view is, hey, we think inflation is going to be longer lasting than you think. Rates are probably going to stay higher longer than people think. And we have a pretty good shot at a recession here. So if I go back to looking back, we just were talking about this morning. You look at the yield curve inversion. It's as bad as it's ever been. And that's always been a harbinger of a recession coming. Right. And we've seen earnings numbers coming down. Now, this year, the markets rallied for a variety of reasons, but we are still very conservatively positioned and we're seeing cross counts. We're talking about it this morning again that retail numbers are looking pretty bad at some of these retailers. You can look at Signet Jeweler this morning, right? Where is it? It's down, right? Torrid, that thing's down this morning as well because they disappointed, right? So you're seeing weakness in pockets, but it's not broad-based, right? So you're still seeing some hope that there's a soft landing, that we can avoid the worst and we can skate through it, but that's not our base case. So how do we deal with that? We keep our gross and net really low and we look for ideas that can, number one, handle inflation, right? So if we believe inflation is going to hang in there or not, high quality businesses that can pass through pricing and sustain it through a recession are going to do all right. And we also look for idiosyncratic and self-help names. So things where things are changing, something's being spun off, something's being crystallized. There's a product launch that's going to work even in a downturn, anything like that, which is a high quality name. But to be honest with you, we're having a hard time finding a lot of them. And the other thing that's really worked for us this year is we've had a bunch of takeouts that were names that we had thought, but now valuations have come in where 
pharma companies are willing to buy some cheap biotechs. Some software companies are even being taken private because valuations have finally come down. So you're seeing that as a little bit of a floor for certain areas. But really, we're conservative right now. and We're finding a lot of shorts, to be honest with you. So, Mike, I know how frustrated I've gotten. And we're in June now. And despite the fact that we all have processes, sometimes you're inclination is to start to chase how difficult it is to stay with the process as opposed to start to chase some of the things that have just been parabolic in a word. That is something to your earlier question to Boris that you take away from prior cycles, which is over the medium term, if you're going to perform, you got to stick to your process. That is the key. When you start trying to drift from a proven process that works over time, that's where you really enter into a dangerous area. Now, look, this is one of the benefits that Boris and I get knocked all the time. Co-PM model, how do you manage that? One of the real benefits of having that sort of co-PM model is that we can keep each other in check when one of us is feeling that they want to tilt in that direction. The other thing we do is you just got to be really disciplined on your entry and your exit prices, and you just try your best not to drift from them, no matter what the situation is throwing at you. I'll give you an example. We've been involved with a name called Supermicro, which I'm sure you've seen. We got involved earlier this year, and it wasn't purely on the AI theme, right? And so it was partly because it was an inexpensive name. We thought they were taking a lot of share, that they'd be able to grow. There was a short story out on it that, that we were able to refute. And got comfortable with a very cheap, fast-growing name that we thought would do well over the next couple quarters. Lo and behold, AI kicks in, right? NVIDIA just hits it out of the park. Everybody's looking for an AI name. This name is not covered. It's under-owned. It was really cheap. And it went parabolic, to your point, Guy. We stayed disciplined with our price targets. And yes, did they go up a little bit because we thought the opportunity set was a bit bigger? Did the AI piece of our theme become a bigger part of the thesis? Yes, it did. But we were trimming it on the way up. It's easy to say, hey, it's working really right. It, But you got to, at the end of the day, as Michael said, over time, you got to be really disciplined about it. Otherwise, you could lose it all. No, it's fascinating because that's a stock that historically I am familiar with it. If you look at it over the course of, I would say, I don't know, nine, 10 years, this stock was mired between $35 and $50 over the last year or so, specifically since April. I think the stock went from 105 to 260. Ridiculous move. So now you're saying, and I know because it's human nature, shit, I missed it. We had this one. So you're, I think the inclination is where do we get back in? But do you just put this on the back burner, Boris, and say, you know what? Trade's over. We're going to move away. Or is this still on your radar screen at some point? No, one of the benefits of being old is that you've seen it over and over again. Having done the work, and we're still involved with it, my, my point is we've been trimming it as we've been going up just because it's been it's worked so well, but it's it hasn't hit our price target yet. We just have sized it appropriately. But name like this, when you do move out of it, you always follow it because you never know. They show up, they miss earnings, stocks down 30%. You've done the work. Hey, is this a real problem or is this a temporary problem? And you can very quickly ascertain that and get back in. I can't tell you the number of names that Michael and I have circled through because we know we've seen them for literally decades and we understand when something's more of a a bigger problem, a secular issue, or just a temporary issue. And that's where you can actually make a lot of money. Michael, we've obviously talked a lot about technology, the economic landscape, but I'm sure there's some sectors out there that people have not thrown away necessarily, but have looked past given this whole AI phenomenon and this high growth, high valuation technology phenomenon. What are you guys looking at specifically? While this might not be at the right exact moment for these names, I would say one area that we're doing a lot of work on is certainly the energy and material sector, which probably sounds a bit unusual, particularly where we are in the cycle, because usually what happens in these situations is you have an inflationary period like we're currently in. Obviously, commodities, materials do well. There's a lot of price signaling that happens. A lot of supply comes in. And by the time you're into the recession coming out of it, that sort of long lead time supply is coming on at the absolute worst time for those environments. This cycle has been very different, whether you want to lay the blame at the foot of ESG or the fact that investors are now demanding a lot more in the way of current cash flow from these type of entities. The price incentive has not really been taken up by these sectors. And so we are very underinvested, particularly in the energy space here in the U.S., but also in some pockets and materials. And so when we enter coming out of a recession and we start getting a little bit more growth, 
And then we're going to find ourselves particularly tight where we typically wouldn't expect to be tight. And that also leads into why we do think that inflation can be a little more persistent throughout the entire cycle, that it's not going to be as easy as a recession just fixing. We talked about having pricing power in an inflationary environment. We've found a couple of aerospace names. They make engine parts, and this is a tremendous business. It, they're built into these engines for the duration. They're sole suppliers. They own the IP. They own part of the JV, and so they can handle price increases. So we found a couple of those that were really dramatically undervalued that we thought could play through a recession even and also play through the recovery and travel. And so that's an example of where even bottoms up marries with the top down macro, Dan, that you were mentioning earlier of, hey, how can you handle inflation? Well, these are businesses that will grow through that and be able to handle that really well and are trading at very cheap valuations where we think we could easily make 50% plus on the upside. So Mike, help us figure this out. And we have this conversation a lot. You hear it in financial media. It seems every day in a major financial news publication online, there's a big debate about it. Or there's data in and around it. Let's talk about the concentration in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. We have six or seven names, which again, we've hit on this now during this conversation a couple of times that are powering a lot of the gains in the, in the broad market here. But we have five stocks that make up seven, $8 trillion in market cap. That's 25% of the S&P 500. That's 50% or so of the NASDAQ 100. How do you guys think this is going to resolve itself? We have an S&P that's up nearly 12% on the year. We have a NASDAQ 100 that's up 32% on the year. And so will we continue the way you guys are thinking about it? I know you sound a bit cautious here, and that's been expressed in your net exposures here. How do you think this resolves itself? Can a new bull market start based on this condition where a handful of names are just a disproportionate amount of the weight of these major indices, but also the performance of the indices? Historically, and particularly if we do go into recession, we certainly have had a dramatic regime change in terms of inflation. It is highly unusual that what took you in the previous bull market reemerges and takes you forward in the next bull market. Now, there certainly have some things about market structure that have changed dramatically, whether it's the rise of ETFs or indexing to just a very dominant portion of the markets, that it could probably make those names hold in and last substantially longer in terms of setting a trend than maybe previous in previous cycles. Also, with the exception of a couple of the names, most of them are not what you would call valuations that have absolutely no sort of support. There are some, but not all of them from a valuation standpoint. I don't think they will completely lose their luster. But as we look over the horizon, and if we do have a downturn, we do think that the next bull market is going to look substantially different than this one. And when we went through a period since the global financial crisis, up to COVID, where we effectively, we had no inflation, disinflation, and the talk was, do we have deflation? And we ended up ultimately, you know, through COVID on a zero bound real rate and term structure fell apart in the credit markets. And basically what you saw was a 10 year started basically just pricing historical inflation with no cushion around it. It's highly unusual. I think even if we get through this period where we tame inflation to some degree, I don't think we're going back to where we were before. There's some structural issues that will keep us from going below the 2% target, then inflation is going to be part of the story going forward. And after you had the year like last year, where the bond markets had one of the worst years on record and 60-40 portfolio was an abysmal mix, I do think as we start seeing growth reemerge, growth in the economy reemerge, that I think you'll start at pricing some historical inflation cushion around the 10-year. And once you do that, the longer duration stuff, the SaaS names, those names are not coming back as leaders. And I do think you will have names, will they be able to lead the home markets? I don't know. But you'll certainly have more value-oriented names, I think, outperform the pricier, longer duration aspects of the market. And the market's always looking for the bull story in the current market. At the moment, that's AI. We'll be interesting to see how far this can carry. Previous bubble-like type stuff, and I'm not saying this is necessarily a bubble, but it can head in that direction. They, they usually do not last particularly long. You just go back. We're a couple of years ago, it was Bitcoin, and then it was alternative energy. And, and now we've moved on to, we've moved on to AI. I think we'll move on again. Think how quickly SPACs came and went as well. That was another thing that was clearly somewhat of a bubble. Boris, before we get out of here, Talk about the growth trajectory at the firm in terms of what you're looking to build there and how investors can find you. Yeah, sure. We're based in Summit, New Jersey. We have a website and that's an easy way to find us. But our growth trajectory is we think 
we're looking really to compound our capital over time and protect the downside, right? It's pretty simple. We've done that, right? And so it's really finding people who share that viewpoint, our investors and our growth right now. We've grown about 40% over the last year and a half in terms of assets, and we think we can handle multiples of what we have right now. And so we're talking to a lot of institutional investors and high net worths who can do that, but they can easily reach us through our website. And that's the best way to contact us. Michael, Boris, thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll obviously put all that information. What do they call those things? The show notes, Dan? Yeah, they call them the show notes. Crazy that they do that. We'll have them in the show notes. So Michael, Boris, thanks for joining us here on the tape. Gentlemen, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.